Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at the indie and punk scenes headed up by R.E.M. and Black Flag. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say, 80s roll. That's right, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, welcoming back the Freebird Yeller himself, Ed Legg, to continue our discussion of Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year by Michelangelo Matos. And... This week, we're focused on not a place, but a magazine, Matter Number no. 9, published out of Chicago, Illinois, July, August 1984 issue. I guess fanzine is more apropos. Pretty elegant way to sum up or to center a chapter on the, what we would now call the indie underground, I guess back in the day. Well, it was a mix of hardcore and what we called college rock, hardcore punk and college rock. Ed, Athens, Georgia, your hometown, big episode for you. It, it is, and it, it's, it's brought up a lot of things. It's, it's kind of the walk of shame. I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but, but I could not have been closer, but also farther away from, <laughs> from what was happening. Well, that's so often the case, but you know, you, I think the only thing that matters is being close to what's happening in your heart. So, you know, it's the friends we make along the way. It's it's not the, it's not the cool shows we can brag about going to later or the bands we can brag about getting into before everybody else did. But I did, of course. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so this fanzine, Matter, was pub- co-published. It was started by Elizabeth Phillips as an REM fanzine. And then she hires a young college freshman from... Uh, Missoula, Montana, I think they were going to Northwestern in Chicago, named Steve Albini, who was like the last person I could think of <laughs> in an Marian fan scene. And sure enough, by the by their second album, he had savagely turned on them. Steve Albini, of course, is the auteur behind Big Black and Shellac, and also the less uh, celebrated Rape Man, which tells you a little bit about his unfortunate habit of saying stupid, awful things, and even naming bands after that. But um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I've, I've never actually gotten my hands on an issue of matter, um, but um, I've seen seen reproductions of them online, including this issue, and, and they had advertising in the whole bit. I mean, it was pretty pro for, for you know, this wasn't some Xerox copy fanzine. They had ads, including an ad for Reckoning, 
R.E.M.'s second album, which touted Murmur, their first album's big wins in the Rolling Stones 1983 critics' polls. So were you aware of R.E.M. and Murmur after all the critical attention they were getting? Well, you know, in a, you know, in a almost kind of cool way, because I had, um, because I had to, I had to make a choice and it really, it, it happened and almost in lockstep with REM's emergence to the point that, that, um, I had, I had kind of glimpsed some of the scene and, um, knew kind of about some things that were going on, but I was nearing the end of my sophomore year at the university of Georgia and was about to become sports editor at a, at a new, at a daily, at a four day a week, daily news, but four days a week newspaper, um, that was trying to do what the university of Texas and the university of Florida student newspapers had done, which was go independent of the university, which we did. And, um, I was having to learn how to do that job when all of a sudden all my cool friends in the features department who I'd been going to concerts with all year, going to shows with, including in Atlanta, um, start telling me about this band REM. And I didn't get to see them until the Friday before exams because that's how busy I was finding out that being a sports writer means you never have a night off again, you know, or a weekend off. And, um, even though I'd been doing it, I was the editor, so I was having to do all that stuff. So, yes, I knew about it, but it was, you know, what we're about to talk about was was a development I knew nothing about. So it was really fascinating when I heard Radio for Europe on the radio and did not recognize them. Wow. So that was the first time you'd heard R.E.M.? On the radio. No, I'd saw, I saw them twice this, in the summer that they formed, and it's oh. right before exams. And then that summer I saw them, but that's how much they changed between wow. the summer summer of 1980 and spring of 83 was when I heard Radio Free Europe. And then, um, and what's interesting is I heard a very early version of Don't Go Back to Rockville, which appears on that second album. And I know the girl, I knew that she was a girl when it was written and I knew her. I worked at the paper with her that song was written about. Wow, so, this is um, the girl, R.E.M. bassist Mike Mills was begging not to go back to Rockville uh, outside D.C., Rockville, Maryland. That is right, and she had been dating a buddy of mine. She worked at the newspaper. She had, she'd been dating a buddy of mine, and this this thing emerges. She ends up kind of vanishing from the, from the newspaper office and only to find out she's dating Mike, and... Um, I couldn't blame her one bit. <laughs> uh, well. I would have done the same thing. I mean, I, it's just, you know, it was killing me. And I still had a band that was about to flame out one more time just to make sure that summer. But really, my career was about to at least go on serious hold for five years while I learned to be an adult, quote unquote. I see. I see. And I, I feel your pain on the sports writing thing. I've been a slave to Saturday nights for <laughs> Since 2007, so yeah, it, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, turning turning your hobby into a job is is uh, it comes at some cost, but um, it does. Yeah, so Matos, it's one thing that I thought was interesting though is that Matos mentions in here that at at one point, um, I think it was Bill Barry, the drummer for REM, was shocked to discover there were 35 bands in Athens, and. Did you notice that none of them are mentioned in this chapter? Yes. And it's fascinating. Yeah, I thought that, and it's a reasonable choice for for Matos to make, I think, because none of those bands outside REM are that well remembered now. Although at the time, when you heard about Murmur, you'd also hear about the guy who produced Murmur, which, and now I'm blanking on his name, um, the lead guy from Let's Active. Which Is was, it Mitch Easter? Is that Yeah, his? Mitch Easter, okay. yes, Mitch Easter. Yeah. Thank you for remembering that. I should bring that out. Yeah. But yeah, Mitch Easter from Let's Active produced Murmur. He might have produced Reckoning, too. But there was um, Let's Active, Guadalcanal Diary, Love Tractor. 
Um, yes. B-52s and Pylon had already, I think, moved on. Uh, Pylon yeah. had already broken up by that point, and the B-52s had gone on to, uh, to national stardom. They don't get mentioned in this chapter either, which is, is kind of interesting. But Very true. Um, yeah, so there was this whole scene in Athens at the time, but they were all kind of to varying degrees in the shadow of REM, both stylistically and, and definitely commercially. But the thing that um, he gets... He establishes really early on is that REM were road warriors, that these guys toured and toured and toured, and that they were one of the bands that pioneered the indie rock club network that's going to go on to build careers all the way up until, you know, Nirvana, the, the whole sub pop wave of bands that conquered the world in the early 90s. They all came up on the same circuit, and REM is one of the bands that that blazed the path. And it's interesting because nowadays REM is seen as, you know, obviously they became massively commercially successful in the late eighties and their early stuff. I would think from the vantage point of today would be classified as indie rather than punk. And, 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 you know, uh, so many bands, those, those traditions have kind of bifurcated and, and bifurcated around this time. But back in the day, REM was playing the same clubs as Black Flag and DOA, uh, the hardcore circuit, essentially. They weren't necessarily playing all the same squats uh, and, and stuff that bands like MDC um, and, and, and Corrosion of Conformity and DRI were playing, but they were playing when, when, when it was clubs and Black Flag was playing a lot of clubs they played in. But let's hear a little bit of REM. This is Little America by REM. That was Little America by R.E.M. with the classic line, Jefferson, I think we're lost. I used to think that meant Thomas Jefferson and was some kind of political <laughs> illusion. <laughs> but it turns out it's a reference, as Matos tells us, to Jefferson Holt, who was R.E.M.'s road manager. And so it was simply autobiographical. I think I think we're lost. Um, and then uh, let's see, I mentioned a little bit about Albini, the editor of the fanzine that's, that's talking about R.E.M., but it, I didn't mention that. Matos does a pretty elegant summary of the Chicago scene, which to some extent got overshadowed by, by scenes in other cities. But there really was a thriving scene in Chicago. You had Big Black, led by Steve Albini, of course, which was one of the few bands in – and I, punk is the wrong word. Um, I guess noise rock is probably the best term that uh, has has come to describe the wave of bands that Big Black headed up. But – they were they used drum machines one of the few bands in this to 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 use drum machines and kind of have industrial elements to their sound which really when i was going back and listening to them for this episode they really jump out as kind of ahead of their time compared to most of their peers that are discussed in this chapter but they also talk about naked ray gun which was a big um initially i, w- I don't know if you'd call them hardcore but definitely punk a band out of chicago and they put out their album throb throb on homestead records in 84 and that was one of these records i think somebody described it as um adventurous music for people who didn't wear mohawks and and that was that was kind of what was going on in 84 and 82 83 uh you know you had bands like the bad brains and black flag and minor threat emerge pushing hardcore punk and and you know which was just a, a faster more stripped down, angrier version of, of, you know, the kind of punk that pioneered in 77 by the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks and others. But by 84, you know, the wave of energy that exploded in har- hardcore, which was not popular at the time, it was very much underground stuff. I mean, clubs wanted nothing to do with it. Radio definitely wanted nothing to do with it. Record labels wanted nothing to do with it. But it got a lot of attention with kids and tape traders. And a ton of these bands started out in this scene. But by the time we get to 1984, 
bands like Naked Reagan, which was on Homestead, and so is Big Black, they're going in different directions. And then SST Records, which is Black Flag's record label or Greg Ginn's record label out of L.A. or Orange County, suddenly there's this big explosion. And this is where I jump in because uh, Husker Du's Zen Arcade comes out, Minutemen's Double Nickels on the Dime comes out, Meat Puppets 2 comes out. And those are records I could sink my teeth into because I was reading about them in Rolling Stone. You didn't have to buy Maximum Rock and Roll, which I couldn't even get in my hometown. Um, eventually, we did start mail ordering that, but you know, but but you could read about the stuff in Rolling Stone, and you could buy it down at Hastings. And I remember going and buying Zen Arcade by Husker Du and feeling so tough and so hardcore. And it's pained me recently. There's this guy, the punk rock NBA on YouTube, Finn McKenty, that I enjoy listening to, but he picks out Husker Du as his example of like the. Uh, uh, indie rock bait and switch where he would read critics talking about you know the, their buzzsaw guitars and incredible over the top noise and then he goes out and buys it and it sounds to him like you know the beatles or something it's like super poppy 60s rock and he, he's just totally you know this is somebody who's a death metal fan and a, and a, a hardcore punk fan and so i can kind of see that disconnect but for me in in 1984 when i bought zen arcade i just i just thought i was the coolest uh kid well, I knew I wasn't the coolest kid in my hometown, but like the second or third coolest kid in my hometown. Were you? Did you come aware across the the, the SST stuff at all at that time? No, and I mean, I I'm sitting here thinking, listen, you know, listen to you and and thinking about my probably the person who I was, you know, most in contact with from Athens, moved to New York around this time, and he stayed pretty dialed in. I mean, when I was a senior in college and about to, you know, be done, you know, be done and get a job. He was, he had another year to go and he was wearing, you know, dead Kennedy's buttons and into class. And we had a couple parties at his apartment and he was playing, you know, too drunk to fuck. And, you know, that, all that stuff, which I was getting a huge kick out of, but, um, but I, then I didn't see him for about three years and he was really kind of, he actually was, he, yeah, I believe him. I mean, he's he was friends with Pete Buck, Varian before they even formed the band. So he had kind of been buddies with him, and he just was really dialed. And then he moved to New York, so I think he really would, you know, continue to to keep keep a, a toe in that. Um, even he was working in trade journalism, and and but it wasn't rock and roll. He was doing some rock and roll freelancing, but really he was um, more like a scenester. So, but so I really I missed. Eighty four was really it for me, where I was really missing everything. Well, you know, but you can always go back and enjoy enjoy the music today. And, that is and, true. Yes. Yeah. And and you were a little older for me. I was fifteen, so this was like the definitive. This was the first time I had my own records that my big brothers didn't hand to me. Like REM was yep. something. My big brother had moved back. He graduated college right into the teeth of the of the 80s oil bus so he's got his uh, geology degree which he was sure the whole time he was going through college was going to be you know this lucrative ticket to success and graduates and suddenly there's an oil bust in a recession and and he can't get any jobs so he's stuck in Borger for an extra year and a half working in the highway department so i got introduced to rem um all the uh, two-tone stuff, like the English beat and the specials. Um, he uh, he had the Minutemen he was into for, for whatever reason, so I had um, Buzzer Howl under the influence of Heat, but he did not cross the line into punk, which, which Minutemen, I guess, was as punk as he got, but the Minutemen are definitely punk-inspired, punk ethos, but musically much more like fast art rock and, and incredibly melodically creative and, and innovative, but that that he could take, but Black Flag, Husker Du, any of that stuff, even the replacements w- was not something he got into. So for me, this this was my music. This was the stuff that really excited me. And my best friend Greg um, was just a total maven. So he he had the Naked Reagan album, he had the Big Black records, and Black Flag was was a huge one. And they talk about Matos spends quite a bit of time on Black Flag, which I think is appropriate. But before we get to Black Flag, I want to talk a little bit more about R.E.M. being road warriors. And Matos, being from Minneapolis, uses um, R.E.M.'s 
Minneapolis states to show their their organic grassroots growth, and that their first gig there they were playing Sam's, and we talked about this in the um, Prince chapter. Actually, Steph tells me I need to I need to cue before we can finish this anecdote. So let's hear another Minneapolis band. This is Husker Du's "Something I Learned Today," the opener from Zen Arcade. was something I learned today, the opening song on Husker Du's Zen Arcade, which is a concept album, at least the first uh, two sides of it are a concept album, loosely about a kid, a runaway kid, you know, from a broken home, uh, running away, making it to the sea, happy ending or not. And then uh, the second the second album, the second uh, record is, is doesn't have a conceptual theme. But anyway, back to R.E.M. and, and Minneapolis, which is where Husker Du was from. R.E.M. was from Athens, Georgia, so they're t- but they're touring all the time, very aggressive. And uh, November 81, they play what's soon to become First Avenue, but it's still called Sam's, which we discussed that whole thing in the Prince episode last week. They, they play on Thanksgiving, which is a terrible night to be playing so far from home. Um, but they got promoted to the big room instead of what they called the entry, which was the little room where more punk and new wave bands would usually play. They got put in the big room, which is where Prince is going to be playing. I'm not even sure if Prince had played there yet. Um, 88 people in November of 81. That's all that showed up. April of 82, just six months later, 347 people. By September of, of 82, 942 people are coming out. And by that time, their, their EP, Chronic Town, uh, was out and they were, um, you know, building momentum. They became the flagship of the American underground band. And and it's interesting, you know, we talked about the the second British invasion and that whole wave of bands, the Culture Club, the Thompson Twins, um, you know, Eurythmics, Human League, tended to be synth pop, tended to be a lot more techy you know, more drum machines, more synthesizers. There were some guitar-oriented bands in England. In fact, the Rolling Stone cover story of the British Invasion had a whole big article on 10 bands that bucked the trends and had bands like the Cult and the Smiths um, that were guitar-oriented, the Bluebells, which a favorite of mine that doesn't often get heard, heard about. But for the most part, the British bands were real synth-heavy, and the American bands, there was really no analog to the underground synth pop thing in america americans were were sticking to their guitars and proved that there was still a lot of creativity to be had out of there um and then one last thing i want to mention before we switch off of rem and this was was michael stipe's sexuality and and, and matos points out how the you know the british invasion the second british invasion bands like you know headed up by boy george from culture club were clearly playing with gender, but they still had to kind of wink and nod. And we talked about how, you know, Boy George made a major gaffe by calling himself a drag queen on the Grammys, which naive America had somehow missed <laughs> that he was <laughs> doing a drag act. But anyway, but but even in the underground, somebody like Michael Stipe had to essentially follow what Matos calls a don't ask, don't tell policy, where he just didn't talk openly about being gay. And Bob Mould and Grant Hart from Who's Du were in a similar boat. And it's just, it just seems like such a conservative time. And this is right when the AIDS epidemic is, 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 is uh, you know, emerging and and so that complicated things even more so you know massive reagan era backlash happening after the free love 60s and 70s but a couple other interesting points about rem they signed to irs which was not a major label although it had major distribution and that's the label that was owned by uh, Stuart copeland's brother miles um of the police and that meant they got to open up for the police in august of 83 they played five dates to 110,000 fans and as little indie bands that do these things, they swore it was a terrible experience, you know, and they'd never do it again. Of course, within five years, they're going to be headlining 
uh, shows uh, almost that big. And in seven, eight years, they'll definitely be headlining shows that big. But they were basically doing all the things that a band that wants to advance itself should do. They did the show Solid Gold Hits, uh, lip syncing, but then they made a big deal about how they wouldn't lip sync for the video for South Central Rain and, and, and got cool points for that. That was a really interesting period of time when you could get positive press for, for resisting doing videos, which I think is kind of a wrongheaded um, approach. But anyway, I did, did, did you do you remember any of that the the controversy about Michael Stipe and whether I wasn't even a controversy it was it was PR about how cool he was that he wouldn't lip sync. He was <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's 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 some stuff that I found out later, but there's also stuff I knew at the time that you know they they um they were already involved with Ian Copeland, which is Miles Copeland's brother. And also Stuart Copeland's brother of the police, they already were involved with him somehow by the summer of 1980. And that's the touring group, FBI, right? Yeah. Promotions promotions company, yeah. Well, Bill Berry, I come to find out, I have a pretty good friend who lives in Wisconsin who is from that era. She saw their first gig and she was actually, she actually was from Macon and went to high school with at least one of Bill Berry or Mike Mills. I can't remember which. Her sister dated one of them. Her sister ended up marrying, um, I think his name's Curtis Crow from Pylon. So, I mean, she's really dialed in. Well, Bill Berry and Mike Mills worked for Paragon Booking, which was the Capricorn Records um, touring arm in the Cap, you know, the Allman Brothers era. They were roadies at some point. They, this all must have been when they were in high school. So they were, and you had a show about a year ago, somebody was doing, um, I think it was about this era, and he pointed out how completely connected, how tot- incredibly connected REM were, and they were. I mean, what, they already knew Ian Copeland. I think they knew Ian Copeland before they even formed formed REM. And get this, they actually opened for the police at the Fox Theater in Atlanta in December of 1980. Just one gig. You know, they were they had a long way to go as they evolved but that's how these guys it seems like nothing happened by mistake with them for the way i look at it now they just and they they even had stagecraft and stipe was the coolest he was easily the coolest um but they had they had they actually had stagecraft more than more than any other you know bands of especially new bands of that era so yeah my two cents yeah, they definitely earned it. And 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 another thing I think is interesting about REM is they were one of the first bands. I think Joy Division had done this too, and maybe you two would also do it. But but you know one of the things that's historically torn rock bands apart, Cream in particular is one that, that jumps to mind, um, is the the Rolling Stones were were damaged by this, or I mean Brian Jones was damaged by this. But there's such yeah. a disparity between. Uh, the the money that the songwriters in the band make and the and what the other musicians make and one yeah. and was one of a wave of bands that solved that problem by putting all four of their names on all all the songs and since all four of them did compose you know they they apparently it was an equitable deal and and each member contributed equally like the Ramones did the same thing but because um, Joey and Didi wrote the majority of the songs eventually they got mad at Basically paying Johnny and Tommy's bills, and <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the you know went switch back to individual credits. But but REM I believe stuck with the the collective credits at least through Automatic for the People. I lose track of them after that. But yeah, very smart move. It, it cuts down on the on the financial disparities in a band and the, and the kind of bitterness that tore a band like Cream apart. So yeah, they they did everything right. Just and they, they worked did. really. They, they worked really, really hard. And so yes, even though from my perspective now, they seem kind of retro and not particularly innovative, but because the kind of folk rock they were doing at the time was so out of fashion, I mean, it hadn't been popular since the mid-60s, that, and then Michael Stipe's murmured vocal style and and his abstract lyrics it it gave it this whole mystique and so murmur just 
you know, in 83, I mean, you know, the, I, I can remember going to the record stores in Amarillo and my and my brother's brother and his friends, you know, had the cool record store girl that they were desperate to talk to. And and she was so busy talking about R.E.M. and, and Michael Stipe, she had no no time for him. You know, there was this real mystique about <laughs> R.E.M. amongst, you know, college kids and hipsters uh, at, at that point in time. But let's let's keep moving and, and take our sponsor break. When we come back, we'll talk about Husker Du and um and black flag hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I think I'm going to do a little swerve because RDT is talking about Black Flag and this an SST record starts with Black Flag and hardcore punk pretty much starts with Black Flag. Black Flag on the West Coast, at least, and Bad Brains on the East Coast. It's interesting also the Bad Brains don't get talked about in this chapter, but they were on hiatus. They broke up in 83 and didn't come back together until 85, 86. So uh, makes sense. He's got a lot of ground to cover. But Black Flag formed in Orange County, uh, Hermosa Beach, California in 1977. Don't play their first gig until 1979 um, and put out first uh, first records uh, independently. Nervous Breakdown Comp in 1979 and then um, managed to make themselves the LAPD's most hated band before they even found an audience. Because, uh, you know, um, Greg Ginn's brother, Raymond Pettibone, who's gone on to great success as a fine artist, designed the legendary Black Flag Bars, which is which is four bars vertically off kilter so it looks kind of like a flag waving and they painted that all over los angeles and then one of their first singles was called police story pettibone drew a a, a poster that went with that with a, a a picture of a cop with a gun in his mouth and and the lapd just saw red and absolutely hated black flag and 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 the whole scene that around you know rose around black flag which encouraged Black Flag to leave town and tour, which is one of the reasons they became the bands along with R.E.M. and D.O.A., who really were the Johnny Appleseeds of this underground uh, punk network. And and this is something we've talked about on Let It Roll a lot. You know, in the 60s, you could make a living as a dance band. So somebody like the MC5 were full-time musicians before they had a record deal. But very quickly thereafter, bands in the early 70s, like, a cheap trick or kiss you could not make a living at uh, playing original music anymore and 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 you know you'd have to get funding and audition and start with a record company it became this whole big very difficult process there was a, an enormous gulf from being a garage band to being a, a new act that was going anywhere that was signed to a major label and getting radio play and touring 
And so what these indie bands are doing is recreating the possibility of being an independent band without massive record company or management support, even though it was very, very hard to make a living. I mean, Black Flag are literally living off a dollar or two a day each through this whole period, but they, they you know, toured relentlessly. They recruited Henry Rollins out of the DC hardcore scene in 1981. They put out the Damage album, which Mato cites is selling 80,000 copies which I haven't seen in other places, um, at, but it, it's, it, it seems believable. But the, they'd signed a deal with a MCA subsidiary called Unicorn to do that. Some vice president of MCA declared the damaged album anti-parent, refused everything to do with it. So Black Flag had to, or SST Records then took over the distribution from Unicorn. They get involved in a nasty lawsuit they're literally under injunction, can't use their name, can't play live gigs, can't record. They put out an album called Everything Went Black without their name on it and still got busted and got in trouble. But ultimately, they were aggressive enough to, and they knew that Unicorn, uh, allegedly the Unicorn execs were up to some shady dealings and basically Unicorn was a money laundering front. And Greg Ginn only playing offense. They they did their own legal work. They hired a lawyer to sign off on what they did, but they did their own legal work and basically um, beat Unicorn in court. And so in 1984, they come roaring out of the gate, a whole new band. It's spoiled down to just Greg Ginn and Henry Rollins, all the other members, including co-founder Chuck Dukowski, the original bass player, frequent songwriter, uh, were all vibed out of the band. Um, and so you got Bill Stevenson on drums and Kara Rosler on bass, um, and they just bust out. They bust out My War in, I think, late 83. Then, then uh, the Family Man album, which was half instrumentals and half spoken word. The Slip It In album. And then the Live 84 tape. So they just flood the market with, with product. They're back on the road, touring everywhere. And, and you know, really make an impact. But the thing was, Damaged codified hardcore punk. And My War moved against it and and people were really confused it was really interesting to watch black flag um become less and less popular the more the harder they worked throughout this whole period so that by 86 they were playing much smaller clubs than they had played in 81 and or in 84 really interesting period of time but at the same time this is going on henry rollins is becoming like this media star like do you remember when he was in Spin Magazine writing essays about 7-Eleven and stuff like that? You, only, vaguely, but yes. And, <laughs> it, he was, I mean, he was clearly visible. Yeah, he, he was a known entity, even though, you know, the scene was quite underground. They were getting no radio play and, and you know, they'd grown their hair out and they were sounding very metal. And, and so they were antagonizing. Yeah, they're part of this hardcore scene which is totally underground and they choose to alienate their own scene, um, you know, which may have been the right artistic decision, but it certainly confused people. But there was an, a little tidbit in here. I had no idea about that. Henry Rollins had gotten to be pals with Van Halen's David Lee Roth and ended up ghostwriting Roth's autobiography, crazy from the heat a couple years later that, that I thought was just hilarious. I'm going to have to read that book again and then look for signs of, of, uh, of Henry Rollins. Yeah. Because it sounds just like David Lee Roth. I mean, I've read it and I mean, it, it sounds just like diamond Dave. I mean, what the hell? Well, I mean, he did what any ghost good ghostwriter does. He listens to his source and he puts, you know, you know, just got to take what diamond. I'm sure he'd heard mountains of prose coming out of diamond. Dave. <laughs> He just just had to remember what he was saying and write it down in his voice. You know, that's that's the classic ghostwriter's work. (laughs) But Black Flag forms this label, SST, as a a consequence. I mean, they already had the SST label, but they they decided to go all in and just stay independent after their disastrous attempt to, to work with MCA. And they start putting out all these records by other bands. The Minutemen are the first band that they sign up, and by 84... The Minutemen are building a critical reputation. That was interesting because hardcore punks, like in my experience with the Minutemen, um, or what I was told later, I wasn't. By the time I got to go to see hardcore shows, D Boone had already died. But but everybody I knew that saw him said, you know, you would go see the local opening hardcore band, and then 
you'd go out and smoke cigarettes while the Minutemen were playing, and then you'd go back in for Black Flag or whoever the headliner was. And that's probably a little harsh, but that was kind of the doctrinaire hardcore view of the Minutemen. Whereas people like my brother who were in the art rock loved them. And so, you know, when, when Devil Nichols on the Dime came out, yeah, that was another record that was just absolutely um, life-defining for me. The, the 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 song, you know, and and of course Michael Azarad's famous book was named "This Maybe Our Band Could Be Your Life." Um, you know, it just meant everything to us. And I can remember in my high school, Dee Boone died, I believe, in December of 1985, and we didn't hear about it until March. I want to say when it was in a national magazine, and literally three or four of my friends wore black armbands to school the next day, just to have <laughs> you know, completely disconnected from time. But, but, and then the last um, SST band I want to talk about was the Meat Puppets that Matos talks about, which these were these acid fried freaks from Phoenix, Arizona whose first album was way weird. It wasn't really hardcore, but it was so intense and crazy. It it slipped in with hardcore, but their second album sounded like a cross between hardcore and the Grateful Dead and really blew people's minds. And and I was immediately a, a massive fan of that. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. And this is X, I Must Not Think Bad Thoughts. that was I Must Not Think Bad Thoughts by X. And this was uh, kind of their anthem and kind of a um, desperate last-ditch appeal. Like the the lyrics literally say, I hear the radio is finally going to play new music. You know, the British invasion. But what about the Minutemen, Flesh Eaters, DOA, Big Boys, and the Black Flag? Will the last American band to get played on the radio please bring the flag? There's no better way to get banned for life than the radio than bitching about uh, the, the, you know, (laughs) the program director's song selection and i think by this point um x was getting pretty desperate because they had been the leader of the la punk scene from 77 on they were on slash records produced by ray manzarak then they signed with electra and just could not get radio play they got what you know no end of critical praise in the press but could not get on the radio and by this point, we're embittered about it and ended up doing a really ill-advised version cover of Wild Thing where they got Michael <laughs> Begener, uh, you know, a metal producer, the guy who produced Accepts, Balls to the Wall, and would go on to produce Dockett and Skid Row and did just a really atrocious version of Wild Thing and just a total desperation move. And, and um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. One of those bands that I would say was kind of curdled by their lack of commercial success. Were you following X through this period? Well, you know, I know that's that's the band Xine Cervenka was in, right? Yeah, yeah. And John Doe. Yes, yep. I knew about him. I had a friend who wrote a story about him when he was at, he was at one of my newspaper buddies in the, at the Miami Herald, so I was paying attention that way. Do you do you know what the reference is to cavemen and astronauts in that not. song? Um, there, this is really freaky. There was a, there was a tele, a, one of those shows that didn't last very long. It's Gilligan's Island era TV show. So we're talking mid sixties TV show. And I'm it was about the car era type stuff. Yes. Way to go, man. Good reference. And that's right from my, you know, early memory bank. And when I saw, I saw those words, this song is like, it's about time. It's about space. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just remember, you know, theme songs are really good in those days, as you probably remember. But, yep, but that, yep. was, that was a cool reference anyway. And and I have this respect for X for some reason. You know, like those two names just conjure uh, a fine brand. <laughs> yeah, X-Zine I mean. and John Doe. They were, they were. It never one of my favorites. I was I was too young for him, um, but I, I definitely respect him, and they definitely, you know, were seen as major contenders and major going to be yes. an important yeah. band at the time. 
Um, I think some of their works held up quite well, but they uh, missed their window. Like that, one of their complaints was that groups like quote Blondie, The Pretenders, Devo, and the Go Go's had all cracked the Hot 100, and we were stuck playing dirty clubs. But as Matos points out, by 1984, Blondie had already broken up. Half of the Pretenders were dead. They'd reformed and were and were commercially successful. It was really never the same, um, other than that one. Um, follow-up album they did after after James Honeyman Scott's death. Uh, yeah. Devo's Shout album stiffed, and we later historians find out that it was a record executive, I believe at MCA, who deliberately smothered Devo. And even after Whippet was such a massive hit that some executive took over and just did not like Devo and 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 suffocated him. And then the Go Go's had broken up, and the Go Go's are one of these bands where my impression of them at the time and what was actually going on that with them were so different. It's just absolutely shocking. Like, you know, my high school band played, we got the beat. Like I just thought of the go-go's yeah. as wholesome, fun, great, you know, great new wave rock and roll. And then come to find out their main songwriter was a junkie. Um, they, they had this really horrific video where they sexually abused some male groupies. I mean, they were, we live in a much much wilder life than I had any yeah. concept, and it and it had all come a cropper by '84 that that you know Jane Wyland quit um, in in a fury uh, after uh, you know she felt like she was getting squeezed out and Belinda Carlisle was getting made the star and I'm blanking on the name of the woman who actually wrote most of the hit songs but she was the one with the heroin problem and you know it's just uh, yeah, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, and it's it's a long way down from the top if you make it really quick. And was Kathy thought, Valentine? Was it Kathy Valentine? Was she the writer? She's the bass player. Now she was the right. bass player. She was brought in. Let, I gotta Google this. Or Charlotte Cappy? Was Charlotte Cappy the writer? I know yeah. most of them. See, these are all bands that really that I still. Yeah, enjoy. it was Charlotte like, Cappy was the 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 main songwriter. Um, for sure. And they were another band that was torn apart by, by songwriting royalties because Gina yeah, Shock, yeah. the drummer, was, was really pissed Gina when she Shock. saw, yes. when she saw Kathy's first royalty check. <laughs> like Queen. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like Queen. <laughs> well, Queen, at least they all four got to write hits at various times and got the big Eventually. Checks. But yeah, eventually. supposedly on your show, I heard that, you know, the drummer had was driving a much nicer car and out of house before everybody else. But I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating, but that's the one that I always think of where yeah. they were living different lifestyles. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, it goes all the way back to the birds where Jim Clark's driving a Ferrari after their first album came out. And, David Cosby <laughs> and, and Jim McGuinn, like Roger McGuinn were just like, what, what is going on here? But yeah, so the go-go's are victim to, to basically every rock and roll cliche there could be. And, and Matos mentions that Jane Wyland quit the band and went to see this as Spinal Tap the same day and, and broke down in tears. <laughs> so, you know, but I do want to talk about a pivot. Actually, I should play our next song and I'll talk about a pivot, a pretty elegant pivot Matos makes to cover uh, another big factor that was going on in the scene. And this is The Replacements, I Will Dare. I Will Dare and the replacements off their Let It Be album, one of the classics of college rock from the era. But And, and the replacements kind of fit in. He, he, he says even the replacements fit into this trend he's talking about. And he uses the Meat Puppets as the segue because the Meat Puppets not only were Grateful Dead influenced, but also had a country influence. Or to me, it was more like country by way of the Grateful Dead because, of course, the Grateful Dead had the two classic country rock albums, American Beauty and Working Man Dead. But it, there was this whole America Americana, and it wasn't called Americana yet, but this Americanism scene that was going on. Um, and X, you know, the the song we quoted, "I Must Not Think Bad Thoughts," was part of that. This this pride in being an American band, and sort of you know endless grappling with what does it mean to be American. But there are, there was this whole wave of bands, like Rank and File, uh, out of L.A. 
I think they ended up moving to Austin, Texas. Alejandro Escovito definitely did um, out of there. But they were, you know, refugees from from the nuns. And I can't remember the other punk band, the Zeros, I want to say, that formed this country punk band called Rank and File. There was Jason and the Scorchers out of Nashville, uh, Blood on the Saddle, Tex and the Horseheads out of L.A., also True West and the Long Riders out of L.A., uh, you had Green on, on Red out of Arizona. There was just this whole sort of cowpunk movement. And there were more bands they don't even mention, like Law and Justice and um, several others. And and this was something that got a lot of record company attention, and but didn't click commercial. None of them ever clicked commercially. And, and for the most part, they... Bands would kind of go through this thing. Like REM is one of the few bands that both did the whole grassroots road warrior thing and worked with with first an indie label and then ultimately Warner Brothers a major label and and you know wrote it all the way to the top. But most of these bands that were not quote unquote hardcore, like there was a real line after you know the the punk new wave split. And 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 to me, all these bands like Rank and File and Jason and the Scorchers, even though that a lot of them had come up originally in the punk scene, they were very much trying to not be part of the hardcore scene. Their audiences were older. They were going for the college rock audience, and they were trying to. A lot of them did, you know, get major label deals or major indie deals, but for the most part, they they didn't click. And it and it and it didn't work, but it, it's kind of a fascinating thing. And he and he, he traces the source of it to um, the LA scene. And X was a big part of that. X was very punky, but also had a roots aspect. But you also had the Gun Club, uh, uh, Jeffrey Lee Pierce's band, did an incredibly great first album. Very bluesy, haunted, weird America sound. You had the Blasters, who were straight up rockabilly, but with a kind of a punk edge or high energy you had the cramps who were um you know degenerate rockabilly uh, uh punk punk stuff and and you know that kind of evolves over time in, into this this cow punk scene um were you were you cognizant yes of i was and i liked it and i, lo- I really got to like and Jason and the Scorchers came through Athens when I was still in school. I heard they were and great live. I never got to see them. It sounds like it, and I didn't. I didn't see them. I mean, that was the thing. By then, they're actually was the basketball not only game. A scene. Yes, yeah, <laughs> basically. And I mean, I was working for. I was stringing for Associated Press. By then, I mean, it was. I was all in. You know, I'm trying to get a, a real job, and um, but they, but there were stories about how wild they were in restaurants and things like that. And that this is tasty music. I mean, this is all that you're mentioning, all these bands that I really liked. And I was in my mid twenties and I had older friends who I'd known in in school who were turning me on to a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, even Jonathan Richmond and and things like that, which I know is not quite I mean, that's a little more berserkly records and all that. But um, Lone Justice. I mean, I was in a. I eventually was in a late '80s band that was really, I think, influenced by Lone Justice quite a bit. Cause we had a female lead singer, but um, this, you know, it was all. I'd, I'd much rather listen to all this than the Eagles. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, it's just a matter of mood. Whether you want to take it easy or or, or take it up a few notches. I remember seeing Rank and File on. Um, Austin City Limits and really being excited by them and really enjoying their Sundown album. But then their second album came out. And this was something that happened over and over again in the 80s, where a band would put out a first album with a really distinctive sound. And then they would put out a second album and it would sound like an 80s record. Like some producer had gotten hold of them and started doing those gated drums and the keyboards and the echo and all that stuff. And so it happened over and over again. And one band he doesn't mention, because they don't quite fit this narrative, was Dream Syndicate out of L.A., which their first album was very Velvet Underground influenced. And then their second album comes out and it sounds like they're trying to be the Rolling Stones. And I just remember over and over again, I remember my brother coming home with the second Gun Club album, which had been produced by Chris Sina Blondie, and the second Violent Femmes album. Violent Femmes is one I think he should have mentioned because they could have fit into this country thing with the, that acoustic sound. But, um, you know, so often this, the, these bands, their second album, The Pogues was another one that you know, had this distinct, rootsy first album. 
and then the second album it sounds like they're trying to sound like you two or something and it just happened <laughs> over and over again um yeah and, and you know it was really hard um really until nirvana i mean a number of bands like rem made it big without losing their underground credibility in the late 80s but for a lot of bands, it was very hard, including this last band we're going to talk about, which is The Replacements, which, you know, they were the other big punk band out of Minneapolis, but they were always self-consciously aiming for the top, like Peter Jesperson, their manager. And I think he also owned Twin Tone Records. I'm not sure. Um, yes, he was one of the founders. Yeah, yeah, he was. And so they saw themselves as grooming The Replacements for a major label and Paul Westerfield had all the song um, writing talent in the world. They had real punk, like their first album, Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, you know, had real punk cred. Um, great album. Bob Simpson was just a great noise punk guitar player. And then Let It Be in 84, I think was their fourth album, was just the perfect mix. And as, and it, and it, as Mato said, it hit college radio like a pipe bomb. And that their song, I Will Dare, the single off of that with a mandolin solo by Pete Buck of RM was number one at 55 college radio stations. And they immediately get gobbled up by Sire Records, Seymour Stein, the legendary uh, A&R man, a record label owner who recently passed away, you know, signed him up. But then, you know, Tim was produced by Tommy Ramone and it didn't sound good. And Bob Stinson was melting down and, and, to me, the replacements just never matched the momentum they had. And it was kind of like, um, you know, the thing I think of is the Simpsons because the Simpsons had this great run for five or six seasons, which is incredibly good. And then the critics discovered it as it was losing its quality. And to me, the replacements had that same thing where the worse their records got, the more the nerds at the college radio station were raving about them. And, and the more critics were singing their praises and, and, for me as a Bob Stinson fan and a fan of, of, you know, sorry, Ma um, and their first album and stuff, it, it just drove me crazy. Like this band just kept getting worse and worse and getting more and more praise and also got, went nowhere commercially. They are the band who took their record label video budget, pointed a camera at a speaker and that was their video. <laughs> and and yeah. I mean, they got good press out of it, but they sure didn't get their video played on MTV and I just see that as just totally willful self-sabotage. But anyway, what's you your just, take on the you just, Oh, you just, you, uh, I moved to Minneapolis in 1990. So it was a very end of it. And they really were still darlings there. Um, in fact, you're, this is in some ways the most critical thing of it. And I don't mean negative critical, just more um, not raving about them. Cause that's what they were getting in Minneapolis. But what you said just said about self sabotage. I mean, they they are the band that that pulled defeat from the jaws of victory over and, and over again. Yeah. It's heart it's heartbreaking. And I just I got curious right before the show, and I started reading that beginning of the book, Trouble Boys, um, yep. about them. And I mean, the stuff about Bob Stenson is as tragic as anything I've ever read about anybody. I mean, yeah. it is just so. And I'm talking about his childhood. I'm not even talking about later. But I'm a Stinson, Bob Stinson fan. I am a total fan of the the original setup and what they were doing. It just is. I just think that the, the you know you pour booze on everything. And the first time I really heard about them was in '86, believe it or not, and at a, at a friend's one of these friends' wedding from Athens, and another friend's telling me about them. And the number one thing he keeps telling me was that they're always drunk. And yep. You know, which, and but I just, I've heard, so, and I never saw him live. I've never seen him, but I've heard so many stories about one minute they were playing like the Who or the Stones at their best. You'd see them one night. The next night it would be like like an assault, like you're being assaulted. Yeah, and, and, and that was their reputation, you know, and, and, you know, the reputation was when they're good, they're the best band on earth, and when they're bad, they're terrible. Yeah. And, you know, they had that yeah. bootleg cassette when the shit hits the fans, and uh, which which is pretty enjoyable. I never got to see them. I, I, numerous people, you know, told me how awesome they were 
live or how terrible they were live. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they, they definitely became legendary. And it's interesting to me yeah. that a lot of younger people, I know people in their 30s or early 40s, really know them and respect them and admire them in a way that they don't say care for who's Cordu or the Meat Puppets or, or some of the other bands from that period that that for me personally have held up a lot better. But for whatever reason, I just got really allergic to late period REM and late period uh, replacements. And I think because they had been favorite bands of mine, I still have a pretty big animus. And I, I, before we wrap up, I want to mention, he also talks about Los Lobos, which was very much yes. at the nexus of this. Well, they were really on the roots side of thing. I mean, they were literally a a Los Angeles Chicano wedding band. Like they they would brag about how if you got married in LA between 73 and 81, we probably played your wedding if you were a Chicano. And, and yet at 1980, they open up for Johnny Rotten's public image limited at the Olympic auditorium and totally get booed off stage and pelted, but they went with it. And pretty soon they're opening up for the blasters at the whiskey at go-go. And because they were virtuoso musicians who could do anything, this scene really worked out for them. They signed up for, they signed to Slash, and I think then then they jumped and did a, a time to dance. I think they were on IRS for how we'll, we'll survive. I really should know that, should check that fact. But how will the we'll survive was just one of those albums um, that that got mega good press, and they actually parlayed that into a real career. Of course, they had the La Bamba cover. Uh, which went to number one a couple years later. Um, but they, they, yeah, it was on Slash. And by this point, Slash was on, was part of Warner Brothers. So, so they, um, they were not on IRS. They were on Slash the whole time. But yeah, it just got total critical praise and, and established a, a, a really successful long running career. They did not have the problem that most of these younger, more new wavy type bands had they just did their thing and they just became touring legends you know the the austin city limits you know i had i had older cousins that were 20 years older than me that loved los lobos in the in the early 90s you know they just carved a, a great career out of it but any final thoughts on the indian punk scene chapter well they did they played i will say about Los Lobos, they played they their first gig in Atlanta, I think, was at the six eight eight, which the six eight eight was the punk the first punk club in Atlanta. That's where the second time I saw REM in eighty eight, nineteen eighty. Los Lobos, I think, played in eighty four at the six eight eight and it happened to be the night before um one of the original members of the side effects funeral was. He passed away. Um, he was an older guy, and he was a, he was actually the ex-husband of Vanessa Briscoe of Pylon, and huh. uh, they formed a band. They were the side effects were reviewed by Chris Go and the and the Village Voice, and they toured, and they were one of those scenes like like Love Tractor. They were the same era, and um, my buddy told me he saw Las Lobos the night before the funeral. They all went down and crashed in somebody's Atlanta pad, and saw Los Lobos and then went to that funeral. So, um, and that was a, that was a turning point in that scene. There was a couple of, uh, you know, untimely deaths of people that I think there was a car crash that took out somebody, um, in that early scene that, that, um, was a, you know, kind of a hard thing. I think REM wrote a song about her. So, huh. um, Anyway, there you have it. A little more inside stuff. <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting that, that, I think the punk scene was open-minded enough for bands like Los yes. Lobos Blasters to, to find an audience and to thrive. And then because they weren't punk, they didn't have any of those negative qualities that, that the radio programmers <laughs> didn't hate them. You know? So Los Lobos yeah. got some radio play. Um, I, although, I don't know, I'm not sure how well How Will the Will Survived. I mean, they really did kind of get their commercial break with the... the La Bamba. Yeah. La Bamba. You know, yeah. a couple of years later with the Lou Diamond Phillips um, biopic on Richie Valens. But, uh, you know, all's well, it ends well. And they did, certainly deserve their yeah. success. Incredibly talented musicians. And so that, it's been a hoot, as always, discussing Michelangelo <laughs> Matos's excellent book. Um, 
can't slow down how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year and next week we'll be back and we will be going to the dance interior in new york city and talking about the dance scene of 1984 so looking forward to that follow the letter roll podcast on twitter at letter rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com thursday nate concludes the three kings of emo rap miniseries with a look at the life and death of Juice World, Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.